Hey, moving from upbeat, uh, let me tell you sort of a depressing story, part of my life story from years ago. No kidding. Um, this was a long time ago, maybe 20 years, maybe 25 years ago, I don't remember, but you weren't, Kathy, wasn't born yet, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was early one morning, and I don't remember the particulars, but I was just extremely dis- depressed and discouraged. And I'm trying to make sense of my life, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, you joke about how depressed you were, but I was really depressed, I was really despondent, I was really discouraged. And... I don't remember what the responsibilities were, but I'm sort of asking myself, God, how do I go on? What, how can I live? And what sort of makes sense out of life? And how can I put things in perspective? And, and uh, I don't remember if I was in tears or not, but I was sure next to it if I wasn't. And I was saying my cry to God and my despair was, God, show me a reason for living and a reason for dying. I need something to live for and I need something to die for you know, somehow put the pieces of my life together so things make sense, so I can keep going. And I was getting ready for work, and I was getting my breakfast, and I've got the radio on, and, and Back to the Bible with Warren Wearsby was on, happened to be on. And I'm not catching most of it, but I'm hearing part of it, and within 30 minutes of my anguished prayer for help, Warren Wearsby says verbatim, the truth is worth living for, and the truth is worth dying for. And I thought, wow, <laughs> that was quick. Thanks, Lord. I get it. The truth is worth living for, and the truth is worth dying for. And that's what we'll be talking about this morning. Welcome, Brad. Good to see you. Um, by the way, I feel like second fiddle this morning a little bit in the sense that I'm sitting in Sunday school, and if you were in Sunday school, you're going to say, Mike's, Mike's saying the same thing again. Uh, a lot of what I'm going to say this morning, if you were here in the Sunday School Hour, you've heard elements of this already. So if you were here, just figure that the Lord's putting an exclamation point on what you heard during the Sunday School Hour, okay? But we're talking about truth. This is the last in the series, uh, Strength in the Things That Remain. And if you remember, that phrase comes out of Jesus' uh, words to the church at Sardis in Revelation 3 in which he said, you've got an appearance or a reputation for one thing, being alive, but you're not. You really need to wake up and strengthen the things that remain. In the arena of truth, I think even for Christians, frankly, you know, maybe we can quote John 14, 6. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But I really question how much we either, as Christians, as the church of Jesus Christ, as that body that needs to wake up and smell the coffee and get things right. I wonder how much we really are committed to knowing the truth and acting on the truth and speaking the truth. And we live in a culture and a time in which uh, it's relative. Uh, Everybody's got an idea. Everybody's got an opinion. We sort of like to live, go along and get along. And Truth sort of is like the burr under your saddle, that it motivates you, it requires things of you. And so even as Christians in the church, we follow one that says he was the truth, but I wonder how much really for us, we follow truth, we know truth, we act on it, and we speak it. Um, 
the kind of truth we're talking about this morning, by the way, it's not incidental. We're, talking, we're, we're not talking about the truth of which peanut butter is better. We're not talking about the truth that K-State really did beat KU yesterday in football either. Incidentals. We're talking more about ultimate, ultimate kinds of truth. So think about that. It's not, not claims. Think about ultimate truths as we go through this this morning. But thinking of Jesus' words to Sardis and the need for truth today, if the church doesn't have truth and the church is us, if we don't have truth, if we don't live truth, and if we don't speak it, we have nothing to offer the world. And in fact, I would argue that we put a shield between heaven and us if we don't acknowledge and live by the truth, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Before we get into truth specifically, let me tell you a few things truth is not. We'll define truth in some way anyway by saying what it is not. Truth is not sincerity. Truth is not sincerity. You know, in our culture, we like to be nice people. By the way, nice is not a biblical value. You'll never see Christ admonish Christians to be nice. It just does not exist. But we value being nice. And being, uh, valuing being nice sort of says, that person's so sincere, isn't that great? I'm not sure if what they believe is true or not, but they're so sincere, isn't that great? And we sort of we raise sincerity to the level or the value of truth. And this is a terrible mistake, frankly. We do it in theology, but we wouldn't do it in any other arena of life. So, for instance, you know, generally, if you want to know, is a claim to truth, this, this works most of the time, take it to its extreme. So if sincerity, if believing something sincerely is as good as really knowing the truth, take that thought to its extreme. So if I sincerely believe I can fly and I launch myself off a tall building, what value will the sincerity of my belief have on my rapid meeting with the ground has absolutely no connection whatsoever it doesn't matter how sincere you are in believing something's true if it's false and it doesn't matter how sincere someone else is or the rest of the world is in believing something's true if it's not sincerity has no direct connection necessarily to what's true so one of the things for christians and for folks in the church We've got to get over this thought that sincerity is as good as truth. It has no necessary connection whatsoever. You can be sincere, the saying goes, and be sincerely wrong. We need to take that to heart. Sincerity does not equal truth. The truth is not necessarily in any way tied to being sincere. Another thing that truth is not, truth is not relative. You know, if you're talking about something subjective that's based on your assessment, your tastes, your likes, your dislikes. Those are opinions. And we can all be 100% right in our opinions, our subjective assessment of something. So if I say broccoli's great and you say, no, broccoli stinks, we're both 100% right because that's subjective. That's just your assessment based on your tastes, your proclivities, your desires, whatever. Everybody's right equally, fine. But in the arena of objective statements about truth, ultimate issues, ultimate truth, one person can't be right and the other hold an opposite view and also be right. Truth is not and cannot be relative. If you're saying opposite things about the same thing, you both cannot be right. Can't happen. If you're in the arena of math, 2 plus 2 equals 4 or it does not equal 4. You can't both be right if two people say... Yes, that's true. No, that's not true. It's not relative. It's not up for grabs. It is true, 
that statement, whatever it is, it is true or it is not true. So in the, in the arena of theology or Christianity, Jesus says, I'm God the Son on earth, I'm the maker and creator of all the universe, and I'm standing here in your midst. That statement's true or it's not true. Those claims are true or they're not true. They are not true for some people, Christians, and not true for Hindus. Those claims are true or not. It's not relative. It's not up for grabs. Your opinions and mine, subjective, great. Claims to objective truth, not subjective, not relative. Truth is not relative. Another thing truth is not, uh, truth is not unknowable. This sort of ties to sincerity. You know, in some arenas, um, people sort of do this. They say, there's so many competing claims about this that I just think no one knows and we can't know because all these sincere people, let's say, disagree about what's true. So we throw our hands up and we say truth is unknowable. I'm not sure what's true because really at the end of the day, truth is unknowable. And there's, there's probably a lot of reasons for this, but let me talk about the one reason I think this generally is a facade for something else, and it's this. Part of the problem with recognizing truth is that if we acknowledge something as true, it has implications for us. And so Jesus says in John's gospel that one of the necessities for being able to grasp and apprehend truth is a willingness to recognize truth. It's the willingness to recognize truth. And that sort of means this, that I'm willing to acknowledge what's true no matter what that costs me. I'm willing to accept it as true even though I don't like the consequences that holds for my life. And generally, we fall down on our ability to apprehend truth not because it's unknowable, but because we don't like the implications of living with the truth or acknowledging the truth. So in John 7, 17, Jesus says this, If anyone's willing to do his will, the Father's will, he will know the teaching, whether it's of God or I speak from myself. So Jesus is talking to the Jews and he says, Hey, I'm the guy the Father spoke about. And the Jews are having a hard time with this. And Jesus says in part this, If you're willing to obey God, you'll know that what I'm saying is the truth. I'm speaking God's words. If you really want to obey God, you'll recognize that the things I say are true. But willing is the great hurdle here. This is the volition, it's the mind, and it's the will, and it's my priorities. Am I willing to acknowledge the truth no matter what that costs me? And generally what we say is, I don't like where that's going to take me, so I'll simply say, we don't know. I can't know. No one can know the truth because we don't want to go down that road. You see the same thing in Romans 1, and I'm not going to read that this morning, but Paul describes this scenario where we know what's true, we don't like it, and so by stages we turn away from the truth and we walk the other way. So it's not that truth is unknowable, Paul says, no, rather that We know something of the truth, even if we don't know all of it. We don't like what that means for us, and so we turn away from it. So the truth is not unknowable. In fact, the Scripture is full of saying God declares the truth, both in word, in the world we live in, etc., but that we don't want to know the truth because we don't like its implications. The truth is not 
unknowable. The last thing, truth is not, uh, this is a little different, truth is not prejudiced. Truth is not prejudiced. And by that I mean this. If something is true and it potentially has impact on your life, it does not matter if you believe it or not that you'll fall under its impact. Uh, Whether or not you believe you're going to die Unless Christ raptures the church first, you're going to die. The scripture says it's been consigned for all men to die. You're going to die. And it doesn't matter if you choose to believe that or not. If you think, no, I'm going to live forever, it will have absolutely no effect on you feeling the effect of the truth that all men die. Or thinking of Brad, my friend, if you don't believe that the highway speed limit is 70 miles an hour, the legislature has enacted it, the signs are on the highway, and you drive blissfully down the highway 85, it doesn't matter that you say, I don't believe the speed limit's 70, when the highway patrolman pulls you over and tickets you. The truth is not prejudiced. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. If, if the truth claim, if the issues around the truth potentially can impact you or will necessarily impact you like death, It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. The truth is not prejudiced. It will affect us all, whether you choose to believe it or not. So the truth is not sincerity. Get over that one. It's not relative. And we live in a culture that's called postmodern, post-Christian. That sort of means we struggle with truth claims. It's not relative. It's not unknowable. And it's not unprejudiced. Not prejudiced, sorry. So what is truth? My definition of truth is this. Uh, Truth is what is. You may quote me. Truth is what is. (laughs) Truth is. That's not in the dictionary, but this is it. Truth is what is. Or truth is that is. If you read the Oxford English Dictionary, it says truth is that which is in accordance with fact or reality. And that's what I mean by truth is what is. Truth is reality, or a truth statement accurately describes the way something really is. Truth reflects reality. A true statement says something that's really true. And it doesn't matter what what language you look at this in, If you read the Old Testament in Hebrew, the term that's routinely translated truth or true in the Old Testament is Hebrew emeth, means faithfulness, reliability, trustworthiness, what conforms to reality in contrast to what is false, what conforms to reality. If you go to the Greek New Testament, amen or amen, we say, and translated in some versions, truly, truly, or really, really. You know, when Jesus uses it twice in John's gospel, he's saying you can count on this. It's really, really true. Verily, verily, I think, uh, is probably King James. Same thing. Aletheia, the other Greek term, truth, truthfulness, corresponding to reality. So in any language you think of, truth is reality, or a truth statement reflects the way things really are. Truth is tied to that which is ultimately real, the way things really are. If we refuse truth, metaphorically, we sort of wander like exiles in tractless wastes, 
with no direction home because there is no direction and there is no home. If you listen to the Sunday school lesson this morning, you know if you're an atheist, there is no direction and there is no home. And there's no meaning in life whatsoever because you can't get there. There, There's no philosophical truth. There's no moral truth because there's no moral being. And we're just... We're just particles in a wasteland. That's what you're left with. And if we refuse to acknowledge and live by what's true, we're simply sort of, you know, the see no evil. We cover our eyes. We create a world in our mind until the walls of reality eventually crash in and break up our comic book world. Now, the God Christians claim to worship is the God of truth, and he identifies himself that way. In fact, it says of God, he cannot lie. He can't say things are other than they really are. And what you'll find, if you read the scriptures and think about this, especially in the prophets in the Old Testament, when people reject truth, they get further and further and further away from God, the ultimate reality. When you reject truth, you necessarily remove yourself further from God's presence. So let me read just a few verses out of the Old Testament, Jeremiah and Isaiah. And remember that God's speaking to his covenant people, and they know something about him, right? Because he met with them on a mountain, and he's got a temple in their backyard there in Jerusalem, and his, his presence is shining glory. Cloud is with them, and they have his covenant. They've got the laws. They've got Genesis. They've got the creation story. So they know something about God, and they're in a covenant with God. And yet, as they go along, they refuse truth little by little. And they grow further and further away from God until he starts telling them he's going to have to judge them for this. He's going to have to sort of clean up their acts so they can come back to him and acknowledge what's true. But listen to the description Jeremiah and Isaiah talk about related to the state of Israel when they've left God. Jeremiah 5.1 says, Roam to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, look And take note, seek in her open squares, if you can find a man, if there is one who does justice, who seeks truth, then I will pardon her. In Jeremiah's day, by the way, the judgment falls, of course, and Israel, Judah, the southern kingdom that's still left, they're taken. Jerusalem's destroyed, most of the captives go to Babylon. So in his day, these judgments fall. And God says in Jeremiah's day, you can look high and low, take as long as you like, scour Jerusalem, you won't find a single person who seeks truth. They don't want it. It's gone. This is sort of like the days of Sodom, you know. Abraham pleads with God, Lord, if there's 50 righteous, will you save it? Spare it. Sure. Well, in Jeremiah's day, you couldn't find one person in Jerusalem, Jeremiah says, who seeks the truth. Truth is gone. Or in Jeremiah 7, 28, Say to them, This is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God or accept correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. In the days of God's judgment, God says, He looks at the nation and He says, Truth has perished. It's not in their mouth. It's not around anymore. Two more, one from Isaiah 48. One, hear this, O house of Jacob, who are named Israel, who come forth from the loins of Judah, who swear by the name of Yahweh and invoke the God of Israel. These guys are religious. They're still using God's name. 
So they're calling on the God of Israel, but not in truth, nor in righteousness. There's sort of this faint that we accept the truth or that truth is important to us, but there's no reality there. We're religious. We say something about the truth, but we really don't want it, and we certainly don't live it. And for me, sort of the most poignant of all of these and, and uh, the, the most vivid in my mind, Isaiah 59 uh, says, Justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. Truth has stumbled in the street and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. This is interesting too. Imagine if you will, the picture is a city and people named justice and righteousness are standing far outside the city. And it says they can't come in because truth has fallen down. There's no truth left. This implies that justice and righteousness require truth. You think about our judicial systems today and you wonder why people can't get justice. It's based on truth. If you don't have truth, you can't have justice and you can't have righteousness. And in Isaiah's day, before Israel's captivity, he says it's as if truth was walking through the street and somebody tripped it and it fell over and it can't get back up. Truth has fallen. Any person... Any church, any culture, any nation that rejects truth has turned from God and walked the opposite direction. We need to wake up. The church needs to wake up to the necessity of the truth. Um, You know, the question sort of becomes, too, at this point, if you say all these things, truth is not, and turning uh, turning from the truth makes distance from God, then where do you get the truth? Uh, I think Russ, Russ has got the truth in his hand. You know, if you've got all these competing claims for what's true, how do you decide what's true? Where do you go to the source for truth? For Christians, of course, we believe that the truth is embodied in the Scripture. And the Scriptures, there's all kinds of defenses, by the way, that we're not going to go into this morning. Talking to Bob before the service. Prophetic Scriptures are a great way to validate the integrity of the Scriptures and the claims that are made. God says something will happen and it happens. We were talking just before the service about the fact that many people a generation ago said Israel as a nation has absolutely no future. But other people who looked at the promises of the Old Testament said, no, Israel has a future. Even though they're not in the land, Israel has a future because God has declared certain things that haven't occurred for them. So Israel must be restored to the land. They're going to be there. And that, that firm assurance was based on God's word being true. Those promises God made have to come true. God can't lie. It can't be any other way. Psalm 119 verse 160 says, The sum of your word is true. The sum of your word is true. So God says, Add up everything I say, and you'll see it's true. Add it all up. Look at it from this angle or that. What I've said is true. The scriptures are true. Or in John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus says to the Jews who believed him, if you continue in my word, you're truly my disciples and you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. So besides bringing freedom, which truth does, Jesus says his words are truth. That if we want to know what in the ultimate arena of ideas, ultimate matters, what's true, Jesus says his words are true. His words declare what really is. Or in John 17, 17, Jesus prayed to God the Father for us, set them apart, 
or make them holy or sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. If you're a Christian, the source for truth is the Scriptures. And forgive me as I bang my drum, my drum slowly on this one again. If you're not reading your Bible, you don't know it's true. In ultimate issues, you don't, and you can't. Because it's God's Word that declares what is, the way things really are. And you won't get that from other sources. They may reflect it, but the source is here. So if you want to know what's true and you want to be able to live a life that's based on truth, you must read your Bible. And by the way, I always say read your Bible. <clears throat> that, that implies more than reading it, thinking about it, praying about it. We'll talk about a couple other things here too, but there is a source for truth. And have you ever thought about this? Let me put just a little bit of guilt on you this morning. If you don't read your Bible every day, If my desire for God is tied to my desire for truth, and they are, then if you don't read your Bible regularly, you are really saying you don't desire God. Does that make sense? I think this is a true corollary. Because truth and God are so intimately connected, you cannot desire one and not desire the other. So if you really want to know God, or you want to draw near to God, or you want to worship Him, or you want to call him father and have this intimate relationship, you will be in the arena of truth, which is his word. So if you find yourself not very often in the scriptures, don't kid yourself. That's a pretty good measure of how much you really desire God in your life. Is that guilty enough? If you're not reading your Bible, tie the time you spend in your Bible to your desire for God. It's a pretty good measure, I think. And I have found, and I've said this before, I have never yet met what I consider a growing, mature Christian who didn't read their Bible every day. Because you can't get there any other way. Your desire for God and your desire for truth are intimately linked. So if you're not reading your Bible every day, you're sort of, that's a pretty clear communication to God of your desire, your level of desire for intimacy or knowledge of Him. So if you want to know God, you have to know what's true. And he's told us what's true in the scriptures. That's where we've got to live. Uh, Knowing the truth is good. It's a good start. It's not enough, though, is it? Jesus said in Matthew 7, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house. It didn't fall. It had been founded on the rock. You know, in this life, you're going to be slammed. You're going to be slammed more than once or twice. You're going to be slammed again and again and again. And I'm telling you, if you don't have a foundation that's based on the rock, you will not hold up. You'll fall down. You'll be toppled over. And, of course, the contrast to this is the guy who builds his life on the sand. And, see, he's just he's a sincere guy who says we can't know the truth, and I'm just doing the best thing I can. But his house, his life is going to fall over because life is going to slam into it. And those happy thoughts aren't enough to keep you going when the foundation falls out. So Jesus says, you hear my word and you keep it or you do it, you act on it. Religious people can often quote the Bible to you. But they have religion, but they don't have life. They've got rules, but they're not holy. And for you and I, it's not enough to know what the Bible says. Great a place as that is to start. Most of us don't even get that far. 
But coming into the truth in the pages of the Scriptures, we've got to be willing to act on those truths and those demands God makes on us. And you will find this, if you don't already know this, truth is progressive. Truth is progressive. And, and what I mean by that is this. <clears throat> if I learn truth but am unwilling to implement that in my life, God will not generally give me more truth. Because truth is morally apprehended, if I refuse to act on the truth I already know, I won't gain the kind of truth I want in the future. Truth is built stage on stage, stage of life on stage of life, as I obey what I already know. I am amazed. I kid you not. I meet with a lot of people regularly. <clears throat> and I keep coming back to this. Um, you talk about their life and the troubles they have in their life. And they'll tell you, this is their problem, or this is their problem, or this is their problem, or this is their problem. And I'm like, you know, none of those. Those are not insignificant. That's not your problem. Your problem is this. God's not first. You want to do what you want to do. You don't read your Bible. I mean, it's simple. Those are, those are peripheral things. Everything else you've talked about is peripheral. It's not your foundational problem. These are your foundational problems. Truth is your problem. Obedience is your problem. That's the deal. We kid ourselves. We, we run around the bush. We say, gosh, we don't know why our life's this way. It's, it's not complicated. Truth is not only propositional, but it's built on itself over time as we obey. And if you don't obey what you already know, don't expect God to bless you with further revelations and insights. This is about morality. Obedience to the truth is moral. And the apprehension of new truth over time is moral. And it's based on my willingness to do what I already know to be true or what God's commands to me already are. <clears throat> you can build a life on the truth that'll stand up. It, I don't say it'll be easy, but it'll stand. If your foundation's truth, it'll stand. Know the truth, act on the truth. The last one I want to say is speak the truth. I think Christians are terrible at this, really, really bad at this. Speak the truth. Paul says in Ephesians 4.15, Speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all ways into Him who is the head, even Christ. Speak the truth in love. Christians need to speak the truth to each other. And sometimes that's uncomfortable. It's telling some, someone something that you know they may find offensive. Or it's telling someone something that you, you think they might think ill of you for. And, and again, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had where you, you say someone's telling you about someone else's issues and you're like, okay, and have you talked to them about that? Well, no, I haven't. Well, that's what you need to do. You need to talk to them. You're biblically mandated and commanded to talk to them. Speak the truth. That's what Christians are supposed to do for each other. And if you notice, that's how you grow up. Speaking the truth to each other, that's the way we grow. Into Christ's likeness. That's what Paul says here. It's attached, directly linked. We speak the truth to each other and we grow towards Christ. Now, two things on this. If you're on the receiving end of truth statements or concerns and you think the person didn't say it in love, get over that and look at the merit of the claim anyway. Um, I think it was Churchill who said he, he highly valued the criticism of his enemies because they would tell him things no one else would. 
If someone tells you something, if they accuse you of something, and you know they don't even like you, and it's certainly not delivered in love, just set that aside for a second and just ask yourself, is there merit in the statement that they made that I need to consider? Sometimes it's the people that don't like us that will tell us the truth. And we need to be open to hearing that, even if it's not spoken in love, okay? That's one side. If I'm on the receiving end. If I'm on the giving end, though, truth is not supposed to be a sledgehammer. And, you know, some of us are good at this. I know the truth, and you need it. And here it is. And truth is a sledgehammer. Or in the words of Proverbs 12, the truth is a sword that we thrust in with pleasure. Again and again and again. I'm here to love you, brother. Have another. It becomes the, the et tu brute thing, you know. I'm, I'm loving you. Here it is. Truth is not meant to be a sword or a sledgehammer. This command says, speak the truth, but that your motivation for doing so is supposed to be in love or for the benefit of the person you're speaking to. We cannot grow and the church cannot grow up into Christ, Christ-likeness, if we don't speak the truth to each other and don't have that motivation, which is the benefit of the other person. If you love the other person and you love God, it gives you the ability to say the things that you know are either going to be hard for you to say or hard for that other person to hear. But love is that motive that will help you do it. Love for God because you're going to obey Him and love for that other person because you know that they need to hear this. They need to understand this, that it will be to their benefit. Another way we speak the truth is this. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins... You know, that, that means we tell the truth to God. When we confess our sins, we tell the truth to God. It means to say the same thing. God knows the way things really are. We never kid Him. We can kid everybody else. We never kid God. He's never fooled. So when we confess our sins, we're going to God and we're telling the truth. We're saying, yes, Lord, I really blew it. I did. A, B, C. Confession is telling the truth. It's getting before God and saying, yeah, this is the way it really is. I really blew it again or again or again or whatever. Confession is telling the truth to God and then being restored. And guys, let me say this too. Sometimes Christians fear being hypocrites because they commit the same sin again and again and again. And they feel like, gosh, I confessed again, but I'm just a hypocrite because I keep doing the same thing again and again. And let me tell you something that encourages me along this line. Jesus says in the Gospels, if your brother sins against you 70 times 7, forgive him. That's 490. And sort of the point is 7 is a perfect number, number of completeness. It means no matter how often your brother sins against you, forgive him. Now, I know that if God's commanded me to forgive my brother as many times as he sins, I know that God's going to forgive me every time. that He's not holding himself to a lower standard than he's requiring of us. So if you blow it a million times, and I'm not kidding, a million times, and you confess your sin to God, I'm not telling you to wallow in your sin, God really does forgive you, and you can be restored, and you can get up and go on. But I know so many Christians who they don't want to confess, tell the truth anymore because they just feel like, I'll just blow it again. Well, if you blow it again, we'll, we'll deal with that. But tell the truth to God, be restored, get up, and go on again. The other thing is this, telling the truth. When you apologize to another Christian or sibling or spouse or friend or coworker, 
because you've done something wrong, that's speaking the truth too. You know, we restore our relationship to God when we go to Him in prayer and confess, tell the truth. But we obviously, we need to do the same thing with each other. So one way in which we speak the truth in love with each other is by simply going and apologizing for the ways we blow it. That's speaking the truth. I'm sorry, Kathy, I spoke to you the way I did this morning. That's speaking the truth. (laughs) I can't imagine that would ever happen like it did this morning. (laughs) Uh, That's speaking the truth. I was out of line. That's speaking the truth. And you know what? Just like being restored with God, then you're restored with the other person. So speaking the truth has all kinds of implications. It's those things that are corrective or exhortive towards others that we know they need to hear. Sometimes it's just between us and God getting things right. Sometimes it's between us and others getting things right in those relationships as well. We're called to speak the truth in love. Back to the Sunday school lesson this morning. That whole series is based on the interchange between Pilate and Jesus in John 18. And the focus of the Sunday school lesson, whose title I can't remember right now. Um, You know the scene, Jesus is standing before Pilate. This is before his crucifixion. And Jesus says this, For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Now, Pilate sort of takes the role of the cynic in the postmodern, post-Christian world when he says, what is truth? As if, who can know the truth? Or, everybody's got their version of truth. Or, whatever. The thing I would want to emphasize this morning is, Jesus says, I've been born, I'm here in this world to testify to the truth. And you and I, and the church of Jesus Christ on the earth today, is Christ present as a martyr, The Greek term martyr means witness as a witness to the truth. And guys, we are worthless. We are not salt. We are not light. We are worthless as martyrs, witnesses, if we don't know the truth, act on the truth, and speak the truth. The significant role we bear in the earth today is to be witnesses to the truth. You got to know it. You got to act on it. And you got to speak it. And if we don't, we, we may have a name that we're alive with Sardis, but we're dead. We're useless. We're not salt. We're not light. It's the truth that makes us valuable to God on the earth. And it's the truth that brings us into close proximity in our relationship with God. The church, without the truth, we're just one more club. And guys, there's better clubs to belong to anyway. If you don't know and embrace and value the truth, the church just has no role in this world whatsoever. And Jesus is shaking us, I think, in these days to say, wake up, smell the coffee, lay hold of the truth. It's costly, but believe me, it is better than the alternatives. Far better than the alternatives. The truth is worth living for. And the truth is worth dying for. Let's pray. Lord, the truth is so, so costly. Acknowledging the truth requires everything of us. Lord, acknowledging the truth means acknowledging who you are, Lord Jesus, the Savior of the world. It requires that we bow our knees in submission to you and accept the salvation costly to you but free to us. That's following the truth. 
Or, Lord, for us following the truth really is spending time with you in the pages of the Scriptures to learn more about you and what your claims are for us. God, may it never be that truth has stumbled in the streets of Lion and Lamb Church or the Church of Jesus Christ or any one of our individual lives where righteousness and justice stand like outsiders, unable to come in. Lord God, let us be characterized as truth lovers, truth seekers, truth speakers. Lord Jesus, help us to wake up to your great call on us to be your witnesses in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.